to be honest, I've been thinking about um, big tech and surveillance for quite a long time, even before Snowden um, and all that. There were people, people like, I mean, I've been working in tech-related things since the mid-2000s or so. And uh, anyone who was sort of paying a bit of attention, who was doing jobs like that, was kind of aware that uh, stuff was happening. There was a guy called Mark Klein who uh, um, was an earlier whistleblower before Snowden. He, he was a, a, a union guy working in one of the... Um, one of the sort of exchange buildings, I guess it was, uh, somewhere on the West Coast, and he noticed this sort of secret room and realised that um, essentially it was hoovering up all internet traffic and sending it off somewhere to be recorded. Um, and that stuff was known publicly um, from uh, something like 2004 or five, I think. Um, but it's surprising in, in retrospect how... Uh, the, the, that history is kind of misremembered as almost beginning with Edward Snowden. Um, I think the Edward Snowden stuff sort of hit the headlines in a way that the earlier things hadn't. Um, so perhaps that's why. Um, uh, but it, yeah, so the, when the Snowden stuff came out, it, it, even then I was kind of like, well, yeah, we sort of knew that this stuff was happening already. But um, um you know, I've done quite a lot of digging into what it actually involves and have spent quite a bit of time tracking what's happening with sort of big tech over, particularly over the last decade or so. Um, so the Zuboff book was a kind of an intervention into that world, which there was already quite a lot of discourse going on around. And, uh, and I mean, there are obviously there are d the details and she's done a bunch of research and there's a certain... Um, kind of coherent picture that you get in that book which I suppose is kind of novel um, but um, the, the thing with with that book in, in particular is her attempts to kind of identify this specific kind of business model right so surveillance capitalism with this kind of sort of Marxism kind of idea of um, surplus focuses on and that's the thing that I'm critical of because I don't think it makes any sense conceptually um, she's right that there's a problem <laughs> um, but I don't think her kind of political economic perspective makes sense could you expand a little about this in order to explain more or less uh, your critique to the general audience or someone who is not very aware about her point so she has this idea that um, there, there was a kind of turning point um, early on in, in Google's history where um, so you have this sort of dot com bubble bursting and, and then you've got these kind of hungry venture capitalists looking for ways to make money and there's a lot of pressure on the big tech companies or that they weren't big tech companies so much at that point really but um, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure to 
find a realistic business model that actually brings in revenue. Um, in the early days, Google had been a more sort of academic inclined organization um, with uh, a kind of opposition to um, having paid ads and so on. Um, but it needed to suddenly um, bring in some cash. And uh, there's so then there's this turn to essentially kind of trying to monetize the data that is produced through users' interactions with their search engine, um, which she identifies as this specific kind of, I think she calls it the behavioral data reinvestment cycle, where you know, Google provides a search which users find useful in their interactions with the search, users implicitly give feedback on um, how the on, on themselves and and how well the search is working, which Google takes, Google takes that data, feeds it back into the system, improves the search, and so on in this kind of virtuous circle. Um, but uh, at, at the same time, Google realised that it could kind of inject into that um, circuit a way of money, which is place ads alongside search results, um, which were which used the behavioural data that was coming from users targeting purposes and I mean as a description of what happened that's broadly correct of course <clears throat> the question is what you make of that um, in at the level of, sort of political economy um, and she Zuboff wants to um, read that in as I say sort of Marxism lines uh, as, as a kind of uh, accumulation of a surplus and the surplus that's being accumulated isn't sort of value or labor or whatever in her terms it's it's uh, behavior right it's behavioral data um but i don't think that really makes sense because there's various characteristics of data which are quite different to what marx was talking about or the classical political economists are talking about in their theories um uh, the obvious key thing is, is the sort of non-scarcity, right? The, the data is inherently sort of non-scarce. It can just be copied at will for almost zero cost. And so um, it doesn't really behave like uh, anything else that you would accumulate in that way. There's also a sense that she sort of wants to read it as a kind of quantitative accumulation where, you know, the, obviously if you're talking about surplus, there's a it has to be, it's inherently a quantitative concept. You've got the amount that's needed for, say, reproduction of the everyday operation of the technology, and then there's something in excess of that, right? Uh, but when you're talking about um, when you're talking about ad targeting, it's not like you can identify a given amount of data that works for keeping the search engine running from day to day and another amount of data on top of that which is used for the ads obviously there's just the data right there's no there's no quantitative measure of what counts as surplus and what doesn't um so although it's on the face of it it's a kind of a maybe a striking sort of analogy or something that she draws and um to this kind of marxish uh, way of looking at things and you know it, it, it helps her to sort of paint her kind of dystopian picture of big tech in a way 
I don't think it really stands up. Um, there are other reasons too, but that's the sort of first of them. Um, and probably the most central one. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Martin. Yeah, because I'm trying to think like um, how uh, her argument will relate to the kind of work that you know was done in EndNotes uh, in the logic of gender uh, by making this kind of distinction between directly market mediated and indirectly market mediated, and you know what is the sphere of reproduction, and then you know what is the sphere of unproductive labor, and uh, so. Uh, have you thought about the, her argument in relationship to this um, already research that you did uh, in EndNotes? Uh, was it clear to you that it was not um, her argument was not working? Yeah, I mean, I, I had never, I've never consciously been like what well, what's the end notes line on Zuboff I was just thinking about it you know in a fairly imminent sense you know what's wrong with this text yeah and at the time I wrote that thing but if you want to raise the question of, of sort of market mediation then yes so the, the, the point at which market mediation comes into play when, when you're talking about something like Google is in the ad market right um, and so Um, the relation of that market to direct users interacting with the Google interface is very kind of heavily mediated. This, uh, the user technology uh, relationship is not directly mediated by an economic transaction, obviously, because basically Google is, is free. Um, and there are many slogans around that about Um, the fact of the matter is that what Google is selling and where there is a market is is ad placements, right? And um, and those ad placements, they you know they're done through this kind of pseudo auction system. Um, so, which which is at many removes from individual users, right? It's, it, it, is some distant sense kind of derived from the behavior of users and it's aiming to to realize itself through through uh, users seeing these ads and, and clicking on them but it's yes it's an extremely tenuously mediated process yeah but it's interesting because it's a fairly generalized metaphor this idea of Uh, data mining or data something that it's out there waiting to be extracted as if it already exists yeah. in nature like crude oil or something like that and we have plenty of examples mm. uh, from different people that 
even using critical approach, they do not deal with data as a recorded abstraction. Uh, rather, they exploit this mining metaphor uh, that it's persistent and uh, and yeah, I, I think it's extremely problematic. I and mean, if you watch a Netflix documentary <laughs> or or a kind of mainstream critical piece of text, this is the let's say hegemonical narrative. It, there, there's been a, a kind of I, I think Zuboff fits into this broadly as well. There's been this kind of centrist backlash against tech uh, over the last few years, particularly since 2016, uh, with people blaming social media for Trump and Brexit and so on. Um, right, and, um, and then that's fed into all these kind of documentaries about how social media is ruining our lives and, uh, and um, you know, this, yeah, this very sort of dystopian picture is, is being presented. And, in some ways it's true uh, broadly right and and uh, I, I wouldn't want to be too harsh about it it's like people these people are coming to realize uh, that there's something wrong uh, and you know there, there really is something wrong there but yeah there's something seriously wrong with a lot of the conceptualization I think and um, and the, the, the whole idea that sort of Facebook gave us Trump I think very questionable um, but um, yeah to return to the questions of data mining and metaphors and so on I mean the, the fact is <laughs> data is a, is, a, is a representation right uh, absolutely it's a representation which is consciously constructed by someone who designs it as such right uh, anyone who works in tech will have to Think through that problem, right? You, you don't you don't just hoover up data kind of willy nilly. Uh, you, you design a system that takes specific data and stores it in a specific way, which is already conceptual, right? Um, it's designed from scratch. I mean, of course, um, things like search engines um, have developed ways of dealing with data which is not sort of pre structured. And, and bringing their own structure to it, you know, finding out out in the wild and so on. But uh, yes, it's certainly not the case that there is a kind of data is kind of as something akin to, to oil or whatever is is um, certainly uh, a very questionable idea because it's it's produced in the act of extraction in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And we are using, we are um, pursuing this kind of agenda uh, with the notion of like uh, bringing into the global capitalist network new locations for extraction. Uh, we do this in the name of the emancipatory potential of new technologies, etc. But as you say, uh, in your review, actually, there is no such a thing as a previous possession of this behavioral data. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's produced in the act of recording, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and prior to that, it's just yeah. It's I have the way that I behave, right? And it's it's either producing data or not. And it only produces data when that data is is consciously stored by someone. So um, yeah, again, that's another thing that's problematic for her way of trying to conceptualize it as a as a sort of almost like a kind of theft <laughs> essentially it's it's kind of political economy as metaphor isn't it this kind of theory it's not actual political economy I, I guess but these metaphors are very uh, strong and I'm just thinking uh, trying to connect with the error text or some of ideas underlying the error text I mean is the kind of perfect uh, argument which would push the you know certain notions of real subsumption uh, it's like it will confirm the most kind of uh, you know Negrian you know understanding that all aspects of life have been you know already subsumed within capitalism or you know or or even you know thesis which you know uh, the communist argument which has a more historical kind of understanding of the notion of uh, real subsumption which I guess you've been criticizing as uh, you know by analyzing you know what you know what do we mean by a totality and I guess this is the underlying uh, argument in the error text, you know, what can we, you know, what do we, what do we mean by a totality? Uh, so maybe if you could make the bridge, like, uh, well, there is a connection there in this in, with Zuboff, actually, isn't there? Because she, um, she also has this totalistic picture here, right, in, in her in her book that she thinks that the big tech companies are. Um, in a sense, aiming to to kind of, kind of engulf the world in their, their sort of new economic paradigm, she thinks she's identified, and she finds a bunch of quotes from them which express these kind of totalistic uh, ambitions. Um, but as I um, pointed out in in the critique, I don't think it makes any logical sense because. Um, as a business model, it's inherently any attempts to to extend the logic. Um, she took, so, sorry to, to cut back to explain slightly more. Uh, she has this idea that um, that companies like Google they aim to gather as much data about you as possible in order to predict as correctly as possible what you're going to do, which will enable them to place ads better and better. And over time, that crosses over into actually trying to shape your behavior so that they can kind of determine you to make you uh, buy the product or whatever. And that that's the, that's the ultimate goal is to, they will be these kind of puppet masters controlling us, you know, through, through nudges or whatever. And um, she thinks that they've got this kind of these totalizing ambitions to sort of shape shape the world uh, in that fashion, and she connects it back to um, Skinner and um, behaviorism and, and so on, um, and with this very dystopian kind of view. But um, if you, it doesn't take much thought to realize that it again, it doesn't make sense in economic terms, right? That um, even that the um, 
the uh, disposable income or the, 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 the spending power of consumers is finite. Um, for every every uh, person that you successfully compel to, to buy a, a given product, that means that that person is not able to buy another product, right? Because, <laughs> um, because their spending power is decreased, which means that the more totalizing you become successfully, the less totalizing you can be because the less ads you can su successfully place. So it's an inherently self-undermining dynamic. Right, so it doesn't even doesn't make sense as a totalizing tendency. Um, it, it, it sounds very good as a kind of uh, again, if you're trying to conjure up this sort of dystopian picture to sort of present them as these these kind of these kind of Skinner Skinnerian kind of um, demigods, <laughs> evil kind of demons who are threatening uh, to sort of subsume our, our consciousness through these technical tools but and I mean there's treated as a metaphor it gets at something true right so I wouldn't want to be too dismissive there is something genuinely quite disturbing in all this stuff um, and it does deserve to be criticized so so pointing out that the conceptual uh, sort of structure the theory that she's presenting doesn't really make sense as a theory not to say that isn't, you know, the point would not be implicitly to, to defend the things that she's criticising. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's that's uh, Zuboff's relation to totality and what's wrong with it. So, you wanted to bridge over into the questions of totality in, uh, in error um, and other stuff. Um, I mean, it's Yes, I don't, I'm not quite, quite sure exactly where to start, but uh, I mean, I, I, in a way, I guess Zuboff would be um, perhaps a good illustration of, of one of the kind of intuitions of that project, which is that there's something kind of deep uh, in the social imaginary uh, which compels people to think in these totalizing terms um, compulsively, you know, there, there's a um, there's a need to conjure up these kind of nightmarish visions of, of the totality um, but typically in a way that's kind of pre-theoretical uh, and is kind of, and warrants critical interrogation um, and that's particularly the case in the Marxist context, I think, because Marxists and people who are influenced by Marx and Marxism, maybe even Zuboff can be included among them, are prone to to these kind of tropes of, of totalistic thinking um, without actually uh, presenting clear theories necessarily. Um, and um, so I have made a point uh, in that text of uh, distinguishing between what I call determinate totality and indeterminate um, determinate being one where one, I mean, the, the key example that I would appeal to is um, from capital um, where the, the mediations that constitute capital and the capitalist mode of production are very specific and they can be kind of 
laid out one by one and all of the, the uh, connections between the mediations can be detailed theoretically and, um, and elaborated and that there's a clear kind of system of, of mediations um, which kind of genuinely illuminates something about the world but um, very often uh, another kind of totality is just sort of conjured up which is something like a sort of vague holism, a vague sense of the whole which may be kind of identified in some sense with capitalism or something uh, but in a way where you can't bring down what these mediations are and the sort of Lukacian thread within Marxism is particularly prone to that sort of thinking um, and I mean I, I, I wouldn't want to be too mean to Lukács there's obviously a huge wealth uh, of, of ideas and insights in Lukács' thought um, but it does seem to me that Marxism kind of got itself into a theoretical tangle around this concept of totality um, with Lukács and, um, and we're still kind of um, struggling with it now and it, not that it's only an intellectual mistake I don't think I mean I, I think it is possible to, to be more or less wrong or right on this question but, but there's also as I say a, I think a, a deep some sort of deep social compulsion to think in terms of these grand totalizations especially when um, one is um, trying to assume a sort of critical mode well, I, I guess that's the tricky bit uh, because Lukacs sees, you know, what are the effects of, you know, uh, capitalist mode of production in consciousness and the way that it affects, uh, yeah, our own conceptual abilities. So this makes me think also of one other distinction that you are doing, which is between the diachronic and the synchronic, synchronic way of understanding these totalities, which I understand them, you know, the you know, the synchronic will be, uh, well, you know, like the differences between, you know, one understanding in as a historical uh, understanding of capitalism and the other one will be as the logical. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, if we take Lukács uh, argument, Lukács argument, this uh, will mean that understanding at the logical level will be uh, already tainted, influenced, uh, or, you know, uh, difficult for us to gain traction of what will be the kind of logical um, understanding of this level of totality, which makes it, you know, very difficult to have good tools um, to assess, you know, the level of... Uh, yeah, capitalist forms of mediation, but uh, yeah, if you could maybe, because I, I, for me, this distinction was extremely helpful as a way to kind of um, point to certain, you know, perspectives within Marxism. You know, certainly, I will put uh, theory communist, um, you know, position within a historical understanding of subsumption. And then maybe other people like value theory or postone, you know, within more the the, the logical. Uh, which generates, both of them generates forms of uh, totalization, but, you know, from they come from very different angles. Uh, and maybe if you could, you know, uh, argue the distinction that you make and why is it important for 
you know, uh, having a critical view on, on totality. I mean, uh, it seems to me that that distinction is is pretty kind of fundamental, really. Um, I'm not sure exactly who first coined the terms of that distinction. I've got a feeling it might go back to Levi Strauss, um, but it's pretty clear if you go back to say Hegel, there are these two modes in operation, right? There's the what you see in the um, science of logic which is this kind of pure system of, of related categories which are not supposed to have any temporal kind of meaning as such. Um, they're just supposed to be kind of mutually connected. Because it's a system, the circle of circles, right? These kind of mutually self-relating um, circular systems which kind of which are meant to be sort of conceptualized outside of time. But in some ways that's sort of, sort of surprising for Hegel, right, because he most people think of him as the, the, the philosopher who introduced history into philosophy in a sense um, uh, of course a great deal of what survives of Hegel's work in the form of the lectures and so on it involves um, quite historically grounded kind of thoughts about the history of art or the history of religion or the history of philosophy um, or whatever and, and then you've got the phenomenology which is this kind of tricky kind of combination of the two and it's hard to sort of tease the two apart is it a system systematic work or is it a is it something that tells a kind of narrative over time right and that kind of mix uh, crossed over into the Marxist tradition of course um, I think it's very clear that Capital is predominantly a systematic work. Of course, it has historical chapters uh, on so-called primitive accumulation and so on. Um, but the overall frame of the work is systematic, and of course, famously, Marx drew inspiration from Hegel's logic um, in, in that aspect of it. Right? Um, but uh, the kind of core Marxist tradition um, um, orthodox Marxism and so on tended historically to always emphasise the, the historical perspective and, um, and the, the aspect of Hegel that would be emphasised would be the idea of kind of uh, dialectics as being about change or something like that right um, so um, the systematic aspects tended to get downplayed right um, for the Endnotes people, early on we were very influenced by Chris Arthur, who um, emphasises the systematic side, right? And he, he calls it systematic dialectic. His, his kind of purified version of, of Marx's um, of, of Marx's well, of capital, um, with, but done with a view to, to the logic, right? Arthur tries to read the two together in a sense and, and produce something new, which is a kind of reconstruction of both at the same time um, uh, but it's it's a marginal tendency really um, <laughs> I think particularly uh, in, in sort of the most mainstream and orthodox Marxisms which which got kind of felt embarrassed by you know the, the problems of tr the transformation problem and, and all those kinds of things um, there, there's a sense of a sort of loss of a, a kind of faith in, in Marx as a 
political economist, right? And uh, and uh, and a sense that well, maybe Marxism is better as a kind of theory of history or society, or you know, Marxism as as a kind of sociology and so on. Um, so yes, it's a, I think the, the strongly synchronic systematizing version of Marxism is a relatively minor thread, but it's absolutely clear that it's the major part of capital, I think, and some people who give serious attention to, to what Marx is doing in capital have to acknowledge that. But my, my point in the um, in error is that there's something that's kind of there's something tricky that are kind of um, there are these sort of antinomies that are produced theoretically around this question that as long as one is thinking in terms of a synchronic self-related totality um, which a determinate totality would typically be uh, it's kind of practically impossible to think about temporal change uh, so the question of the origin of capitalism becomes kind of more or less unthinkable as long as one is doing a systematic project. Um, <laughs> so it's it, it doesn't make sense to, to insist on the systematic at the expense of everything else, right? You, you have to have a historicizing perspective, but then if you only have a historicizing perspective, uh, you, it, there's something that's kind of lost, right? Because in a, in a real sense, um, Capital is a system, right? It is a it is a synchronically self-related thing, uh, and understanding it properly, understanding what it is, involves understanding how money and capital and labour and, and you know the, the very basic categories of capital relate to each other, uh, which is not something that you can understand in purely historical terms. But there's a sort of antinomy that gets produced by these two poles: the historicizing and the systematizing. Which I think you can, you know, broadly you can trace back to Greece and kind of basic core sort of problems of thought, but um, it particularly leads to sort of paradoxes in Marxist theory, I think, and, and certain key binds. Could carry on uh, rambling, but I'm just aware that I'm no, just no, 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 no. It's uh, it's just, I mean, yeah, no, it's because it's such um, uh, well, I think we are at the crux of the question. Um, but um, how do you think uh, this um, argue? Yeah, like to make this distinction. Yeah, help you to you know criticize uh, these different forms of totality yeah like you know if you could you know just basically maybe more precise see the problems of totalization within these two perspectives because one inevitably it needs the totalization in the systematic in the sense that is uh, it needs to presuppose you know uh, you know li like the way that capital needs to you know uh, needs to presuppose value and you know that it needs you know to have a kind of it has to work at the totality of the whole system, you know, in order for exchange value to, you know, to occur. And, you know, so on the one hand, there is already a level of totality occurring, which is, uh, this is you know, it has a systemic qualities in capital. Uh, 
but on the other hand, yeah, this text is trying to um, argue against um, certainly a historical understanding of the totality, uh, but also I think uh, by your critique, for example, that you just made of Lukacs, of other indeterminate understandings of totality. So it seems such a um, almost uh, very tricky because in the systematic it it implies that there is already a totality going on. Yeah. It is necessary. Uh, however, yeah, you're trying to criticize other you know problematic forms of totalization. So if you could just like even if maybe you I think you you already you know you're saying it, but if you could point a bit more towards this what I find a very tricky specific uh, crucial point of your argument in error yeah and it's, it's, it's I realize it's, it's very hard to actually kind of capture it all in, in detail in, in the course of a conversation and so I kind of it's probably best to refer people to the text to some extent because um, <laughs> it's quite hard to work out but but to, to try to sort of gloss it a, a bit um, I mean I, I think that essentially there's so there, there is a real objective totalization in a sense happening in, out there in the world which is which is capital I mean, there are others too probably but um, there's, there's this dominant self-systematizing self-constructing uh, character to capital and that gives a certain coherence to the world and it has certain inner tendencies as well which um, enable it to be identified with the world beyond it um, its subsumptive tendency in relation to the labor process and um, the uh, nature of money as universal equivalent potentially able to stand in for anything that can give a price you know. um, and uh, the, the tendency of, of the capitalist mode of production to dominate all others uh, and um, you know there are various aspects to capitalist mode of production which do really make it seem like this all-encompassing whole, right? In, in kind of vague sense, there's a sense that it does seem to encompass the world, right? Um, but it's very hard to say in what way exactly. Like, is it, it, its effects get everywhere, right? It, it has effects in terms of the melting of ice caps and the, the degree of carbon dioxide. In the atmosphere and so on, but then does that make the atmosphere part of the mode of production? I would say no. Um, I don't think, it, nor, nor the ice caps, right? They're, they're things that are affected by the mode of production. Um, so there's something important, I think, if we're, if we're trying to have a theory rather than just conjure up a kind of picture, there's something important about insisting on determinacy, right? What are the Mediations. What what is the mode of production? What constitutes it? What um, what does it explain as a concept, and what does it not explain? And there have to be things that it doesn't explain. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, Lukács makes the slightly absurd claim at the beginning of the famous uh, rarefication essay that um, literally everything can be explained in terms of um, the commodity, uh, which. I mean, it just can't be true, right? <laughs> There's no way it can be true. And, um, I mean, Lukacs does, uh, you know, 
do a, a very good job of finding all sorts of interesting philosophical thoughts from, from that kind of line of thinking but um, but yes for, for a theory to be illuminating it has to have a, it has to apply to something specific I'd say and it has to have a determinate content right? and uh, and so um, to, so spelling out what the theory of the mode of production is involves also implicitly saying what it's not um, and uh, so there I think you have to start to tease apart what it is what's an effect of the mode of production what's actually incorporated within the mode of production what capital actually subsumes and makes part of itself i.e. the labour process um, and what it just kind of affects what it shapes over time and so on and through its implications and those, those are different things right Capital can be immensely powerful and um, immensely important um, force in the world without having to identify itself with the world. That's the key point. It doesn't have to be the all-encompassing totality. Um, but I think there is a, as well as the fact that there's a sort of justification for the, for the kind of vaguer kind of totality thinking in some of these tendencies of capital. Um, there's also a basic um, compulsion, I think, of kind of social thinking, right? That what what is society? What is civilization? What is the nation? Uh, all these kinds of concepts of social wholes tend to actually be rather um, kind of elusive when you actually try and think about them. But there's a sense, I think, that. There's something basic to thinking about about the social, which does lead people towards a kind of indeterminate mode of totalization. Um, it seems to be basic. Are you trying to find a way of expressing this potential for actualization or potential for creating a new horizon from within? the very arrangement of something that cannot be a subject of a totality. I mean, because uh, what you are describing is this fantasy of a, a yeah, total control grid from capital that actually Uh, you can see as well in different uh, different narratives to understand uh, yeah systemic understandings of the world you you could argue that for example this very strong critique by Rossi Brodiotti the yeah this total control greed Is, is, is something uh, is, is similar this um, understanding of uh, the complexity of the world subjected to a, uh, I don't know uh, how to express this um, univocal total distribution of Yeah, systemic understanding of, of every complexity 
um, yeah, this 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 is a the, the classic total prediction control fantasy that is yeah um, quite naive in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's many many different things to tease apart in all of this, um, and and we could potentially go on forever, uh, but. Uh, one of the most important factors, I think, is that um, there's something real that happens with the emergence of the modern nation state, uh, which is inherently a kind of information gathering, um, uh, war making, technology developing structure. Right? And that happens kind of around the same time as, as the kind of coming into dominance of capitalist mode of production. But the two can't be directly identified with each other. Of course, they exist in very close relation to each other and um, and can't be completely separated either. But, uh, but certainly, the, the nation state is not is not just part of the mode of production. Um, and um, I think that yeah, that emergence of the nation state, the uh, a state that actually kind of takes an interest in what its citizens are doing and, uh, and what they think, right, and, uh, and has regulates its media, uh, that regulates its healthcare system and so on. All of those things kind of push you to, in, in the direction of thinking, well, things like, you know, biopolitics and concepts like that, are, perhaps they have a point, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a meaning in <laughs> In those things, which is they're getting at something real, right? Uh, and um, the question is what the totality is and what, what the actual degree of control is in any given case. And um, so there's the capitalist totality and capitalist plastic control, which is obviously massively dominant, and it is, is but the, the realm that it really controls is the workplace, and it always has been. Um, Outside of the workplace, you're looking more at the states, right, and how states regulate the lives of their citizenries. And that's to come back to the, the point about Zuboff again. That's the um, the level on which I, I think is a kind of neglected level in her analysis because the stuff that's really disturbing about big tech is not it's not being given creepy ads uh, by Google, right? It's the fact that um, these companies are <laughs> like more or less directly integrated into the security state and uh, are handing huge amounts of data about uh, normal people to the NSA and so on, um, which we, for the most part people are able to uh, forget about it in their everyday lives and you know, probably much more aware of it if you're a, if you're an Islamist, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know most people don't feel it directly um, impact them, but it's there, right? And it will be a significant um, factor in any um, future movement that has any potential for any sort of anti-systemic uh, impact. Um, it's it's, uh, it's hard not to be surveyed these days and that doesn't mean that we're completely controlled um, but the scope for control has increased um, and that's 
broadly something that should be understood in terms of a long-term tendency of the state, I think. Um, which, as I say, it's um, even before um, automated computation, the state was increasingly information-gathering apparatus and, and, and uh, mechanization and, uh, of, of information processing from the sort of 18, 80s or 90s just massively increased the state's capacity and, and it, it gets ever deeper particularly in the last couple of decades uh, so yeah but it's not control as such right it, it, you know, it's, it's hands off most of the time yeah but uh, for me it's interesting how uh, we are able to engineer or encode a specific outcomes so then we are able to attribute predictive accuracy to certain technological processes so um, as humans and as part of a social very chaotic uh, body uh, we are ex too complex to, to encode the result of something like I don't know the subculture reaction to the present time, etc. But um, as a co consumer, yeah, we we can be predictive, and the, sorry, go on. Yeah, so it is fairly simple for. Um, certain platforms to encode these specific outcomes of our uh, consumer behavior. So then when we project these regularities, obviously they are regularities, it's not a discrete reality, but still, uh, yeah, then we are um, ch challenging the 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 potential creation of uh, unpredicted futures or disruption to this presupposed control of the state platforms, etc. So um, the way in which, yeah, our consumer behavior or the the, the very fabric and easy to understand uh, dimension of capitalism in our daily lives starts to yeah, uh, be implicit in stuff like, yeah, uh, let's say the use of Facebook ads for political campaigns, etc. And obviously there are re reductive, simplistic readings about the impact of, of such things. But I am almost more interested in the way in which these very silly evil figures that they think they can reenact the the, the classic cybernetic pro uh, um, power uh, in order to manipulate yeah society is like how they can uh, drink their their own illusion of control out of these projected regularities of the consumer. About the, um, the kind of 
uh, Mia Culpers from all these Silicon Valley people who are like, yeah. yeah 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 I mean yeah. Th- there's a long tradition of um, technologists and scientists doing these Mea culpas, right, going all the way back to um, the Oppenheimer and, uh, and and Norbert Wiener and uh, yeah. Cold War people and so on, and it's I think it's an interesting phenomenon culturally in a way because uh, it, it, it's it's funny, isn't it? It's it's almost like um, a sort of messianic fantasy. There's, Absolutely, there's this idea that oh, you know. Um, We've, we've, you know, aren't we terrible? Look how powerful we are. You know? Yeah, it is a badge of honor for them. At least I understand it as, as such. It's like, okay, look, look what we did, what we were able to produce, no? It's, it's striking, isn't it? Because you've got very, I think there's, it's worth comparing to the discourse that you get around um, things like, um, like the biohacking stuff and um, and kind of uh, sort of avant-garde genetics stuff uh, on the one hand and AI on the other. In, in both of those di- areas, you've got these kind of these ethicist people, right? These, <laughs> these sort of people who are paid professionally to worry about the impact of this um, this discipline on the world, and uh, and. And the practitioners seem to love it, right? And, and they do a lot of it themselves too. A lot of this professional sort of worrying, public worrying. I, you know, I'm about to sort of set loose this kind of uh, en- this kind of newly engineered strain of some plant, which is going to kind of change the ecosystem of, of a given island. Oh, should I do this? You know, <laughs> and, and there, uh, uh, there's a sense of like immense power in these pronouncements that you're going to do this thing and is it right is it wrong we need to have a public debate about this right they would say those kinds of things and yeah but it's interesting because it's um so basically we are uh, or any kind of progressive thinker or marxist is absolutely aware about the idea that capitalism exploits inequality etc but is is to some extent surprising that uh, we are not fully aware about the driven force of the idea that capitalism exploits obviously as well the notion of uncertainty and risk and there is this this extremely famous um, line from the communist manifesto in which they talk about the how uh, capital constantly re- revolutionize the modes of production and generates this uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions. So agitates, generates uncertainty, and this is uh, the um, difference between the bourgeois epoch from earlier ones, mm-hmm. that we have, we we do something with this uncertainty. We the we do something with this disturbance of our social conditions. So we provide, uh, and this is extremely relevant for for our present moment. We provide solutions to these huge levels of uncertainty, and we see this, and we see the acceleration and velocity of capital now. 
uh, in providing solutions to the immediate economical crisis because it's everything is so uncertain everything is so volatile so we need to revolution uh, uh, create a new revolution in order to solve this potential economical crisis the, so uh, one thinks of the uh, the blockchain enthusiasts right who uh, who in a sense have, have really emerged out of the uh, the fallout of the 2007-8 crisis um, yeah literally you know that, that first um, paper on on Bitcoin was, was published um, directly referencing those events and, uh, the aftermath of them and um, a lot of these Bitcoin people think that um, or blockchain people think that through these technologies that are going to sort of solve the problems of a kind of um, crisis prone uh, risk filled society and, and, and return to something stable where we can trust each other right that trust is the key word um, if you're going to move into this kind of utopia of, of mutual trust um, mediated by technology yeah yeah that reminds me to well well it reminds me it's just like uh, I think uh, it makes me think of your notion of error which it seems here as a kind of um, yeah you give it a political glimpse um, and on the one hand it's appealing on the other hand to, uh, inevitably reminds me of the glitchy culture of the you know 2000s with computer music and you know just like <laughs> you know so you know it's uh, so maybe if you could maybe talk a bit about the error and how it will you know is it you know do you see potential for politicizing uh, these errors that either, you know, capital technology produces or, you know, ha yeah, how do you see it as a political strategy or, or if not, maybe? Well, um, so that concept, uh, it's a kind of um, sort of, it's got a few different sides to it, I guess. Um, the the key thing that it was identifying in that text was it's about um, that there's this kind of pseudo-Kantian kind of analysis of these antinomies of, of revolutionary thinking around the time and so on, right? Um, but uh, based in the idea that there is not just a theoretical mistake happening, but in some sense a, a kind of objective problem whereby our capacity to think um, radical transformation can't quite uh, can't quite keep up with um, the actual character of the world that there's there's some sense in some sense a fundamental conceptual problem and um, so that in a sense you have this kind of objective gulf right there's there's the, the actual course of, of things and there's there's our capacity to think about that and the two uh, tends to be uh, non-aligned, right? And error um, in engineering terms, or, um, so I have a background in computer programming, um, and so I'm obviously thinking about error uh, in a very basic sense on an everyday basis. And I, I, in fact, this the, the concept occurred to me um, through my work practice originally. I was thinking about how I do um, test-driven development. Programming 
and um, I, as a matter of principle, will um, normally try to uh, create an error first so that I know what the broken state of given fig looks like um, so that I can measure the non-broken state of the given thing, right? Um, in, in I can specify it technically. Um, so it occurred to me that there's something interesting about that, that, that you, in a way you're, you're beginning from the negative, you're beginning from, from a definition of what doesn't work and what, what not working looks like. And, um, and you're trying to get from that to something that does work and can be specified technically. So looking into that and also uh, the, the concept of error in statistics and more broadly in, in engineering, even like civil engineering and so on, there's a sense of error as being something which is not simply uh, a mistake, right? It's, it's, it's something that's objective and that can be specified and, and given a determinate content. And, um, and it's about this gap, it's about a gulf between two things, between something that's specified as kind of maybe intended or, or, or the goal and something that's like where you're actually at, for example. Um, so it struck me that that was a useful word to, to, to identify this gulf that I was trying to conceptualize, which is gulf between our capacity to think uh, as on the basis of determinate material condition and the actual way in which change will unfold necessarily in reality. Um, so, um, yes, I, I, so I kind of repurposed that concept to, uh, to think about that gulf there. Um, firstly, linking it to this kind of pseudo-Kantian stroke Hegelian frame that the text uses. Um, but also, it, it, it's linking it to the technical composition, technical, <laughs> not technical composition in the traditional Marxist sense, but the, the technical constitution of the world uh, and, and it's, it's material, the, the, the way in which the material and the technical character of things delimits our capacity to act and, and, th and thereby also potentially our capacity to think. Um, which, um, so it occurs to, to me that um, in a sense, in a sense the, the, the world's, the, the material constitution of, of our devices, of our infrastructures, of the entire built environment um, lays out certain behavioural patterns as kind of more or less necessary, right? And it, it delimits others as, as not possible, or not desirable. Um, so, if, if um, in a sense, adhering to, in a, in a sense, the, the the capitalist mode of production does encode in the composition of the, the, the technical world, certain patterns that we have to follow. Right? doesn't do so in a completely deterministic fashion, of course, right? It does so in a, in a very mediated, uh, complex way where, as I say in the text, capital shapes social relations, and social relations shape the material world, and then the material world shapes our behavior, so there's many steps of mediation. And we can't directly simply identify those constraints on our activity and on our thought with capital, but there's nonetheless a relation. Um, so then the, th the thought would be that 
um, in a sense, a process of, of moving beyond um, capital relation will necessarily be a process of refiguring that, that material world um, and finding ways to do things differently. And um, that means kind of going there's there's something interesting about this this error is the sort of negative specification right something about things which which are ruled out by by current technologies yeah, would be the sort of error space right <laughs> uh, that that would be the thought that you kind of the, the point is try to try to expand our capacities in certain ways um, to, to to create tools which are usable to extend struggles and so on to put it in more concrete terms, I mean, I, I, although I think it's, you know, it's certainly a critique of the, the, the neutrality of technology is something important that should be done. I, again, another aspect of this text error is uh, to emphasise how ambivalent the, the politics of various technologies are. Right? And technologies tend to have, they tend to be shaped politically and culturally, they tend to reflect certain values. Uh, and to delimit behaviours in certain ways, but they tend to do so in a way that's quite sort of open-ended and um, and can be can take on other meanings as well or, or other behaviours. And the, the sort of technical technical sort of stack uh, which underpins the the net is um, is the is a key case in point, right? Because you've got these you've got these kind of um, hippie grad students uh, in the um, late 60s who, who formed the basic culture um, in which things like TCPIP and so on get kind of uh, constituted originally and there is something anarchic and kind of open-ended radically about those things and then also from a sort of related culture you get the emergence of the free software thing um, which I mean, Richard Stallman, in a slightly delusional way, wants to claim that he's in favour of capitalism, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be consistent the way in which he, he claims that. Um, but nonetheless, free software has been a gift to, um, to internet-based capitalism because you, you can run any number of Linux servers for free, basically. Uh, you don't need to pay for the power. Um, so... Um, but that, so it's been a gift to capital in a way that stuff. But but it's also a set of tools which could very easily be used for non-capitalist means and, and are routinely on a daily basis already. Right? So there's there's an ambivalence there, and um, the thought would be that in any process of radical change in both production, those technical capacities will be being developed. Right? They'll be we will be using technologies to open up new possibilities and we will be creating new technologies um, and we'll be, so those ambivalences that are there in existing technology will be at least a place to start right yeah so that's they that's have, uh, oh, sorry please, please, say they have some utopian hmm? sim, utopian potential in a simple fashion right um, but they're at least a, uh, in strategic terms a kind of place to begin yeah I mean it's a um, very interesting because I'm thinking, um, yeah, like 
if we take communication, you know, yeah, for example, understood by theory communist, which, you know, it presupposes, you know, the totality of real substantium, which makes it impossible for any form of program, you know, like the whole anti-programmatism, which is, you know, uh, quite a, the radical proposal that, you know, I guess communication theory had, which I guess in notes was uh, very interested for a number of years. And But now, you know, okay, there is a critical perspective on the level of totality of capitalism, or is really trying to bring some precision to the debate or you know, posing problems, but then it's a, um, this error concept is a very, okay, it's, it's, it's like a very humble attempt to get out of the, it's almost the most humble attempt to get out of anti-programmatism, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, and then, you know, so then it makes me think of, you know, what in terms of political terms what it will mean you know and um, I guess you start to also bring the notion of transition and I was thinking you know I was reading actually the, the text on transition by Jack Kamat and I was seeing that you actually made the you know the cleanup on the you know on the web article and you know there it talks all about the rackets you know and you know it's a hardcore critique with the whole kind of rackets this kind of the small groups you know yeah. hating each other and everything and uh, and I'm trying to think of well you know what about today because even if you know I mean criticizing the totality of capitalism certainly we are seeing the racketization in political terms or the lack of political horizon or you know like the the problems with you know what what does it mean to to bring something to the table in terms of organization or a strategy and and this is. You know, it's bringing something to the table, but in terms of use, is a uh, you know what do you you know what do you do with it in political terms? I mean, that's I I always think that it's it's obviously a very hard thing to ask of a kind of general theory that it provided a strategic orientation to the context. I think there's almost maybe a, a cap. Um, in such things, but um, I, I, you know, I think I said in the, in, in error as well that it's like um, our capacity to generate um, actual strategies in concrete situations. It's not something that you can kind of take as given, right? And it's something that. That requires certain material conditions, and um, it becomes easier when you're in a period of heightened struggle, as kind of as movements build and as as the as this dynamic of contestation takes hold, and things start to fray, you start to be able to see ways in which you can move forwards, right? But in the absence of that sort of context, hard to say in terms of kind of vague generalities what to do. I mean, so so I can say at the level of, of a very you know a very general level, yes, we need to think about technical tools and communications and um, things like that. Right? Uh, those will obviously have to be um, something that's at play in. in, in 
movements to come. But in exactly what concrete fashion, I don't think it's ever going to be possible to talk about that until you're actually sort of getting there. Um, one can aim to, to um, support things which might be of use uh, speculatively uh, but it's yeah it's uh, a lot comes down to social contingency and if you try to strategize in the absence of such a context then I think you largely just produce fantasies so TC and prog programmatism uh, I mean I think um, it's it's a tricky question, but I don't see it as being that much in contradiction. You know, I, I think that they were broadly right with that concept, right, that there was a programmatic period of working class struggle which did come to an end around about the time that they identify. Um, and... There, and we are in a different kind of period now uh, with a different kind of struggle going on um, now as to what that actually means in terms of what is to be done or whatever I think that's um, just a completely open question and I don't think anyone's really sort of answered that with any clarity not TC or, or Endnotes or, or anyone it's, a, it's just something that we can grapple with basis really um, TC had these sort of abstract concepts like the, the theory of l'écart, the idea that you know, this, this, this kind of gap opens up within the struggle and, and there's, this, there's a sort of metaphysics of, of, um, of class consciousness in a sense um, for TC this idea of you know, how, how do you conceptualise the class kind of overcoming its own class being uh, and all of that um, which I guess it had a certain point, but um, that's, uh, um, I think, that sort of problematic gets less um, pressing if you if you have those, if you ease the, um, the totalizations a bit, as, as I've been trying to argue in, in error, that if you really make your sole object of theory this kind of totality which incorporates capital and, and class and the whole of capitalist society into one one big entity then it becomes a kind of theor theological problematic to conceptualize how you use sort of radical transformation in that whole right um, um, for the kinds of reasons that I, I've talked about with this, this diachronic stuff I'd refer people to, to read error before but um, I think if you if you step back a little bit and, and allow totalizations to be on the one hand a bit looser and on the other hand a bit more specific, so more specific about what the actual mode of production is, what it what it applies to, what it affects and how it affects things and, and how that relates to indeterminate whole of society and so on. That gives you a perspective in which there's a lot of room for contingency and, um, and complexity. Um, you don't have to think everything through this kind of tight knot of class belonging only, right? And the tight knot of, of the class and capital together. Because there's a lot else 
going on in the world other than capital and class. There are states, there are wars, there are gender relations, um, there are race relations, um, and so on, of course, right? Um, and the idea that you have to to think through all of those complexities, somehow find a way of thinking of them is in the same whole as, as capital and class, I, I think is a, is a wrong move. What you need to be clear about is which kind of totality you're talking about at any given time, if that's what you're doing and what it applies to and, and being clear that it doesn't apply to everything, right? Um, when you do that, then, yeah, you have this, this more complex and contingent perspective on the world and there's more space in that i think for allowing for um to be unexpected and for um for localized kind of strategies localized um tactics um which over time will build up into movements and so on um in some cases uh, not always um and then and then once that really happens then starting to think about strategy properly is, is something that you can do. So I don't think it's exactly... Um, it's not so much against TC as such. I, mean, I don't really think about TC all that much these days. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's certainly kind of getting out of the bind of, of the narrow kind of capital and class kind of theory. Although in some ways I think they tried to do that themselves. With, they started to try to think about gender seriously and so on um, and I'm not quite sure where they popped in all that these days I haven't followed them for a little while